Well, good morning, everybody, and good to see you all today. It's a special chapel today. We are privileged uh, to focus from time to time, as we should, on stewardship. We have a God that has modeled stewardship because he is the great giver. Would you agree with me in that regard? We've just sung about that. Our speaker today is David H. Wills, President Emeritus of the National Christian Foundation. David came to faith at the first event ever held at Texas Stadium when he was 12 years old. Now, for those of you that do not know, Texas Stadium in Irving, Texas, used to be the place where the Dallas Cowboys played. Had a big hole in the roof so God could watch the game. Listen to this story, though. His parents wanted to hear Johnny Cash, who was the opening act for a guy named Billy Graham, who was having a crusade that night when David came to faith. David serves as President Emeritus of the National Christian Foundation and joined NCF in 1998 as its first president. NCF has become the world's largest Christian grant-making foundation, serving over 30,000 families. In 2020, NCF received over $2 billion in contributions and made 270,000 grants of over $1.3 billion to 28,453 different organizations. David graduated with a business and law degree from Baylor University and a master's degree from Dallas Theological Seminary. His education mirrors his passion, business, law, and theology. David has co-authored two books, Investing in God's Business and Family Money. He serves on multiple boards, including Barnhart Crane and Rigging, Kingdom Companies Group, American Bible Society, the IF Gathering, the River Foundation, EFCA, the Impact Foundation, Trustbridge Global Foundation, and Generous Giving, which he co-founded. David and his wife, Chris, have been married for 30 years, grew up in the same neighborhood in Wichita Falls, Texas, and have known each other since they were kids. Speaking of kids, they have nine of them, which includes two daughters-in-law. David and Chris live in China Spring, Texas, near Waco, Texas. Would you please join me in welcoming a good friend of Dallas Seminary, David Wills. Thank you. Wow, what an honor it is to be here. When I walked up, uh, Pastor Joe said, Dr. Wills, and I said, no, I'm not a doctor. And then the gentleman that helped me with my mic said, Pastor Wills, and I said, no, I'm not a, I'm not a pastor. And I looked at this, and I said, I'm a lawyer. And he gave me that look like, how, how did you get in here? <laughs> so, well, welcome. Um, I, uh, it really is an honor. Um, I have a cheering section over here. This is family. Uh, I have, uh, thank you, thank you. Um, no matter what happens today, they're going to still love me, so I'm good with that. Um, but uh, I have um, a son that graduated from Dallas Seminary just very recently. I have a daughter who is in Dallas Seminary right now. My daughter-in-law works for Dallas Seminary. Um, and you heard, I got a degree from Dallas Seminary. What do you think about that? 
Okay. It was in 2020. I, I, don't, I honestly don't remember what the degree is. It's a, um, but uh, I started in 1988 uh, on my degree at Dallas Seminary. I'm not kidding. So I averaged about two credit hours per year for 30-something years uh, and did finally receive a degree. Um, and it truly is an honor. I actually want to tell you, before I get into the stewardship thing, I want to tell you about my first class at Dallas Seminary. Um, my roommate and I, we had just moved from Baylor. We'd finished law school. We thought that academic rigor was in our past. We decided since we had time on our hands, we would go take a Dallas Seminary class at night. He's clerking for a federal judge. I'm trying cases. We have time. So we sign up for this class Wednesday night. And we're thinking it's going to be like a, like, kind of like a Bible study on steroids with a really good Bible study leader. So we come to class that first night, and we walk in late, which was a big mistake, because the professor looked at us and said, we need to be timely. And I remember this like it was yesterday. Um, and he says, welcome to prolegomena and bibliology. And we looked at each other, <laughs> do they not speak English here? <laughs> what, what is this? I'm, I'm not kidding you. He then prays to open our class, and in his prayer, are several more words like prolegomena that we do not know what they mean. And we thought, what have we gotten ourselves into? The professor was a guy named Norm Geisler. Anybody know who Norm Geisler is? Stormin Norman Geisler. We were overwhelmed after the first class. We came back the next Wednesday, and Dr. Geisler, remember this is when the overheads with little cranks where the little thing would slide across and you'd mark. And he's up there writing, and he says this. This is the second class, that Jesus can be found in the entirety of Scripture. Well, my roommate and I already know that we are theological imbeciles from the last Wednesday night class that we were in. <laughs> and we knew that we were in the deep end of the pool. And he said this, and I kid you not, it, there was about probably, I, I, my mind is about 40 people were in the class. Kelly and I were sitting on this side. And this fella right over here stands, I think we had to stand up to ask questions in Dr. Geisler's class. This guy stands up and I kid you not, he says, Dr. Geisler, in my devotions, I'm going through the book of Song of Solomon, which caused everybody in the class to laugh a little bit, like, is that appropriate? <laughs> uh, and he says to Dr. Geisler, I'm sorry, but I just can't agree with you that Jesus is found throughout the entirety of scripture. I'm not, I don't see that in this book big mistake. Now, I didn't really know who Norman Geisler was, but everybody else in the class did. <laughs> but neither did this guy apparently know who he was. <laughs> Dr. Geisler puts his pen on the overhead, walks over to this gentleman, and has him sit down. And I, I don't know how long it lasted. 10, 15 minutes? He goes section by section through the book of Song of Solomon and gives the Christology of this book. Everybody in the class jaw dropped. It was unbelievable. We got in our car that night and we knew, we said to each other, man, we're going to take everything we can. There's nothing like this place. So before I speak on stewardship, and you can see this is emotional because this place transformed my life. So there's two things I want to admonish, admonish you to do if you're a student here. First of all, I want you to thank God. It's a gift. It's incredible. 
And then I want you to soak it in. Soak it in. You're going to miss this place when it's over. I promise you that. I did come back 30 years later to finish, but I did miss it for 30 years. I want you to soak it in. Let it go from here to here. It'll transform you. It will. Now, if you're not a student at Dallas Seminary and you're sitting in here and you're thinking about doing it, you need to get on it. You need to come on board. This is incredible. It's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. So I want to encourage you. Maybe you're listening or maybe you're sitting here, you're teetering. Get to Dallas. Get here. It's amazing. Let's talk about stewardship. So what does it look like when a family or someone decides to really read and believe and act on what the Bible says about wealth and generosity and financial things? What does it look like? What does it look like when somebody, a family, really believes that they're not the owner, they're the steward, that God is the owner, their job is to manage what God has entrusted into their care? What does that look like? So I'm going to tell you a story. It's a true story. I want you to go back with me about 30 years. Two young men graduate from the University of Tennessee with engineering degrees. Both are pretty smart guys. They're brothers, and they move back to Memphis, Tennessee uh, to go to work for their mom and dad in a small construction company that they have in Memphis. And on the way to Memphis, one of the brothers gets married. So there's three people in the story. Brother number one, engineer. His name is Alan. His wife's name is Catherine, and his brother's name is Eric. A little about Alan. Alan, they're both engineers, smart guys. Alan is really has tremendous business acumen, and his brother, um, his brother's kind of a mad scientist. He's kind of like an Einstein engineer, um, like kind of bizarre, and you know, really, really smart guy. You go into his office; it's got whiteboards, huge. It, from my perspective, it's hieroglyphics. And most people that will walk in his office say, what in the world is going on here? But these two guys perfectly complemented each other. Very shortly after arriving in Memphis, I kid you not, their parents came to them and said, we're going to go sail around the world. We're done with the business now that you're here, and we can sell it. There's a pretty good amount of equipment. We can sell it, or um, you guys can take over the business, and it can be yours, and you can try to grow it if you want to. And it had provided a good lifestyle, not a huge business. And uh, the decision-making process, actually, you would think it would be pretty easy. Well, sure, we'll take the business, but it wasn't easy. So Catherine's role in this story is that she is the global, mission-minded, adventurous part of the team. So when the parents said, we're leaving, Catherine says to her husband, Alan, oh, this is great. You're an engineer. We can get into any country in the world Let's move to Saudi Arabia and evangelize unengaged people. Seriously. And Alan's like, no, I think we need to do the business. And Catherine's like, no, I think we need to move to Saudi Arabia. And they kept voting, and it kept being (laughs) one-to-one. But eventually, Catherine said, Alan, I give you my vote. I trust you. But I do want you to know that if you take the business... We're going to get swallowed up by a whale, and he's going to spit us out on the, on the shore of Saudi Arabia someday. Okay? But it's your vote. They took the business. And as soon as they took the business, Alan, who's the business more minded kind of side of things, started to think through, you know, what, what happens if we're successful at this? He's, you know, he's hoping that's going to happen. 
And uh, he decides that he really ought to dig into the Word of God and see what it has to say about wealth and finances and generosity because he doesn't want to really mess this up. So he does. So he starts into the Bible and he just gets to Exodus and he hits the Big Ten Commandments. What does commandment number 10 say? What's the word? Covetousness. He studies that and he realizes, you know, that's really more about his heart than it is about his neighbor. And he concludes that, you know, covetousness is really wanting more and more of what you have enough of already. Oh, put it on the board. He gets to Proverbs, lots of stuff in Proverbs. But one of the things in Proverbs that really strikes him is where it says, don't give me too little or give me too much because that's problematic. So give me what I need. Puts it on the board. Moves into the New Testament. Gets to the Gospels. Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6. Biggie, really biggie here. Laying up treasure is what your little subtitle will say. And it says something that really, really takes him off guard. It says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, on earth rather, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where those three things won't happen. And he's thinking, well, I don't want to lay up treasure on earth because it's going to go away. It's going to, I'm going to lose it all. So what all does this mean? And he thinks through and he concludes that it's not necessarily the wrong thing to do to lay up treasure on earth. It's just a stupid thing to do. So he puts it on the board. Stupid to lay up treasure in heaven. Next he comes to the farmer who accomplishes what we would call the American dream. All right? The guy has a bumper crop after bumper crop. He is successful. And he's got more and more of what he had enough of already. So what did he do? He built bigger barns. And Alan noticed it did not go well for that guy. That was not a good play. Uh, bad, bad night after he finished doing that for him. Okay? Really bad. So don't build bigger barns. Put it on the wall. Put it up there on the, on the board. Next, he heads to uh, the book of Acts. <clears throat> um, and in the book of Acts, there's this little, little red section, little sentence, some of Jesus' last words in the Bible, and it simply says, it's more blessed to give than receive. Now, he's pondering these things. Are, that is not normal. That doesn't make sense. But he's digging into this, so it's more blessed to give than receive. Really? Really? Is that true? Put it up on the board. He keeps going. He gets into Paul's writings. <clears throat> and it's warning after warning about wealth, danger, be on your guard, look out. And he concludes that it sounds like greed and materialism and wanting more and more is really hard to see in the mirror. <laughs> um, or he wouldn't say, look out. Because he doesn't say that about other issues and other sin. It's, it's this one that really is unusual. So he goes through this process, and here's his conclusion. And the conclusion was that business success could lead to spiritual failure. Whoa. Another way of saying it is getting rich is really risky. So he gathers the team together, and he says, what are we going to do about this? And they basically decided, we're not going to get rich. We can control that. So they fixed their lifestyle. They fixed their income. 
Let's say about a 30 years ago, it was, let's say it was $100,000 per year that they paid themselves in this business. And they decided if it made any more than that, they would give it away. Pretty simple. And then they went and they told their family, they told friends, and they told their coworkers. So they were stuck at this point. What happened? Year one, I'm not going to go through all 30 years, but year one, they both tied off their $100,000 and the business made a 10% profit. I think it was one of the best years the business had ever had. And they gave it all away. And they were, they were elated. No, no guarantee this would ever happen again. Let's fast forward to last year. Last year, Alan and Catherine lived on about $140,000. So they've had a cost of living adjustment over the years. They're up to $140,000. And they gave away over $20 million. Powerful. They can remember when their giving became, in, in a year, it was 10 times their income. And then they could remember when it was every month their giving was 10 times their income. Now they're getting to where it's about every two weeks their giving is 10 times their income. Now they will tell you they have sacrificed nothing. Absolutely nothing. As a matter of fact, they would tell you this was the best financial decision we've ever made. But wait, there's more. They decided they didn't want to get rich, but all of a sudden, the value of the company was going up. Now, for those of you that are business-minded or numbers people, you, you can calculate this uh, with your phone if you want, but the business was growing at almost 20% per year every year. Now, for those of you that can run numbers, it's a bit jaw-dropping because you know what that means after 30 years. But they decided about 15 years ago, we should give away the business. We still own the business, these two brothers, which is actually causing them a problem because they've become wealthy. 15 years ago, they give the business away. And Catherine said something that was very powerful. It was about $100 million, by the way, is what the business was worth after 15 years. And she said, our balance sheet now matches our theology. Because we weren't the owners anyway. So, and she also noted that their life didn't change at all. There was no change whatsoever in anything that they were doing or anything that they were about. Pretty powerful. And so if you're cranking those numbers, if anybody is, you know that the business is approaching a billion dollar valuation right now. And they don't own it anymore. Charity owns their business. But wait, there's more. Okay, so they also decided it's not even wise for us to be the ones giving away this money because that can, pride can seep in because, you know, you've got all this money and people are asking you for the money. So they decide we're actually going to let our employees give away this money. And so today there are about 85 employees and spouses that decide where this 20 to $30 million per year goes every year. They're very strategic. They're very intentional about this. So they have a, uh, a Middle East team. They have uh, an India team. They have a leadership development team. They have a scripture team that's involved in translation, distribution, and engagement of scripture. So Alan is on the India team. He's one of about 15 people on the India team deciding where the money's going to go in India. Catherine has passion for scripture. So she's on the scripture team, and they're deciding... Where can we get God's word that has never been before? Where can we get engagement of God's word where it's not well engaged? So the word of God and the souls of people are what drive everything they do. So um, 
Let me um, kind of circle this around, because these are some big numbers, extraordinary things, and you can kind of feel like this doesn't really apply to me. Uh, but keep in mind, it started off very small, very, very small. And God just trusted them. And they were faithful with a little, and he just kept giving more and more. They say that uh, you know, they shovel it out as fast as they can, and God shovels it back, and he has a bigger shovel. <laughs> they just can't keep up. But they're living an incredible life. Now, some people ask, what about their kids? How do their kids handle this? they got a lot of kids. Both have a lot of kids. And if you got to speak with the kids, you would see that the kids don't regret anything their parents ever did. Uh, one of their kids has probably been to over 40 countries in the world to see what God is doing with the resources that they're giving away. It's amazing. They say that they are very intentionally leaving a rich inheritance to their children. It just has very little to do with money. Very little to do with money. So here's what I want uh, to leave with you guys. There's three questions. We call these the treasure questions. The treasure principle is that principle from Matthew 6 that says you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead, something that they are very serious about. But the three questions that they have asked and answered throughout their lives are really important questions for all of us and for the people that someday you will influence when you leave this place. And here are the three questions. Why should I be generous? It's a matter of the heart. That's the one you heard Alan wrestling with as he went through the scriptures. Why should I be generous? The second question is, how are we going to do this, this generosity thing? For them, it's extremely complex. The charity that owns their business files taxes in 30 different states. Uh, so it's very complicated and very complex. But for some, it's not that complex. My wife and I love to give anonymously. That's a how issue with regards to our giving. How are we gonna do our giving? And the third question is, where should I give? Where should we give? And you could hear how intentional they are about the answer to that question. And so I want you to just think about these three questions for your own life. One of the things that we find as we're working with these families, like the Barnharts, is that when people really do a good job of answering those three questions, and they keep, keep ruminating on them throughout their life, there's another question that gets flipped upside down. And it's a question all of us ask. And the question is simply, how much should we give? Uh, this, this last week, I talked with a business owner that asked me that exact question. How much should I give? When people answer these three questions well, they stop asking how much should I give, and they start asking how much should we keep? So do you hear, did you, do you hear how they flip that question? And they decided this is how much we should keep. And then we give the rest of it away. And there's joy, extreme joy. Um, so do I have time for two more minutes? Okay. So there's another passage of Scripture that's been very important. And, um, and it's in Luke chapter 16. And so, so when I took a year of Greek at Dallas Seminary, we only went through John. So I cannot be held responsible for how I'm going to exegete Luke chapter 16, okay? Bust Fanning, is he still around? He's gone, yeah, I'm sure. That's, he was a phenomenal professor. But he did tell me that one year of Greek was enough for me and I didn't need to do any more languages. <laughs> okay, thanks, Bust. <laughs> but he was right. Um, Luke 16 is the crazy chapter where the um, unrighteous manager is. You know that parable? It's bizarre. I mean, the Bible, everybody needs to read their Bible. It's got the craziest stuff in it. So this guy basically rips off his, his boss. Um, and, uh, and Jesus 
draws principles out of what this guy did that were positive. Um, and in Luke 16, 9, it, there is this one verse in the Bible that tells us exactly what we're supposed to do with wealth. And in Luke 16, 9, it says this, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone or when you're gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Here's my interpretation. When you get to heaven, you get one of two options. You can be invited over to all your friends' mansions for a dinner, or you can do takeout. That's it. And you want to use every resource you've got to win friends for yourselves. Every resource you've got, because there's, n there's gonna be nothing better than when you get on the other side and you get to enjoy a meal and hear the stories from your friends that you've probably never met before. Many of them you may have met, but many of them you will have never met before. This is a driving force in the life of this family, and I hope that it can be a driving force in your life as well. I can tell you that there is joy unspeakable from extravagant generosity. It's incredible. And the reason it is is because when we are extravagantly generous, we are most like our Father in heaven. Thanks for letting me share with you.